This is Africa Digest. A very good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance broadcasting from Johannesburg. We're on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and on DSTV Audio Bouquet, Channel 902. My name is Asanda Matzaunyane. I'm driving the show with Onelen Zinti on news, Jalani Tulo on economics, and on sports is Musibudi Makura. Coming up this hour of Africa Digest. The United Nations mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo says its mandate is not to protect political actors, Today is the International Nurses' Day. In economics, Gabon expects its economy to grow by 3% in 2016. And in sports, South African 400-meter hurdler to compete in Friday's IAAF Diamond League meeting in China. Those stories and more coming up here on Africa Digest. Let's get the news first. Here's Onelentinti. Thank you, Asanda. A suicide bomber pretending to be a madman blew himself up on Thursday, killing at least five people outside government offices in Nigeria's northeastern city of Maiduguri. Thursday's blast comes the day after worshippers prevented a suicide bomber from entering a mosque on the outskirts of Maiduguri. The two bombings this week are the first attacks in two months. This is reported to be an indication of the success of heightened vigilance by soldiers and self-defense groups that have reported incepting several suicide bombers recently. Residents blamed the incident on Boko Haram Islamic extremists who have killed hundreds this year in suicide bombings. Four members of military forces loyal to Libya's new UN-backed unity government have been killed and 30 wounded in clashes with Islamic State insurgents near the western Libyan city of Misrata. Commanders of an operation group set up by unity government authorities in Misrata say they are preparing for an offensive to capture Sita. European powers and the United States hope the unity government will be able to unite Libya's rival political and armed factions to take on Islamic state. Uganda's President Yoweri Museveni has been sworn into office for a fifth consecutive term. The opposition may have boycotted the inauguration ceremony following disputed presidential elections shared concluded in February. Julius Mubangwa has more. Mixed reactions across Uganda as Yoweri Museveni sworn in for another five years in office. Museveni, who has been in power for 30 years, was handed the instruments of power amid cheers from his supporters at a colorful ceremony in the capital, Kampala. He was declared winner of the February presidential elections with 61% of the vote. The opposition challenged the results but lost the petition after court upheld Museveni's victory. Attempts to protest have been marred by arrests and clashes between police and the opposition who have boycotted the Thursday inauguration. He has been credited for economic recovery, restoring stability and fighting HIV AIDS. But critics accuse his government of corruption and increasing intolerance against the opposition. 
Meanwhile, Uganda has been asked to arrest Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir and hand him over to the International Criminal Court. Al-Bashir earlier arrived in Kampala to attend the inauguration of President Yoram Museveni. Amnesty International says al-Bashir is wanted by the ICC for genocide and Uganda must face up to its international obligation. The country is a signatory to the Rome Statute. A recent court ruling in South Africa called the behavior of the government disgraceful for their failure to arrest al-Bashir when he travelled to Johannesburg to attend the African Union summit last year. Julius explains further. We apologise for that discrepancy. And finally, tense atmosphere has engulfed the world's largest refugee camp in Dadaab, northeast of the Kenyan capital Nairobi, where the government is expected to repatriate more than 600,000 Somali refugees. The government maintains that Dadaab camp has become a recruitment center and pl- Landing place for Somalia's Al Shabaab militants accused of killing more than 500 Kenyans over the past three years. United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Antonio Guterres. Process of repatriation of Somalis to Somalia, of refugees to Somalia, needs to abide by international law and to meet uh, international standards. And those standards uh, are that it needs to be voluntary and it's, it needs to be in safety and dignity. There is a clear sense of urgency. This has been lasting for such a long time that we need to have a strong commitment to the solution strategy for Somali refugees that had been agreed already by all the countries involved. We recognize that there is a security problem and we have agreed with the government to uh, enhance the security mechanisms in Dadaab in order to guarantee law and order in Dadaab. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelin Sinsi. Thank you, Onele. This is Africa Digest here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, 1706 Central African time it is. If you've just joined us, good afternoon to you. I'm Asanda Matsaunyani. The United Nations mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo says its mandate is not to protect political actors unless this is instructed by the Security Council in New York. The statement was made yesterday at a weekly press conference in Kinshasa following the hearing of Moses Katumbi, former governor of the mineral-rich province of Katanga, in the Lumbumbasi High Court for allegedly hiring mercenaries. Januel Bamwezwe reports from Kinshasa. Moses Katumbi is expected once more this Friday in the High Court of Lubumbashi for another hearing after he has appeared in the same court on Monday and Wednesday for allegations of hiring mercenaries in order to destabilize the Republic. This happens while Katumbi, who's also a famous businessman, has announced his candidacy in order to succeed to President Joseph Kabila, whose second and last term is ending in December, and this country's constitution doesn't allow him to seek another term. The UN mission here is closely looking at the Moses Katumbi's case, although its spokesperson, Charles Antoine Bambara, has refused to comment until the court decision can be known. When the 
judicial case is open, we don't comment on it. We will wait until the end and see the result and comment and give our analysis on the result or the verdict of the, the trial. So we are waiting and see how it will evolve and uh, at the end, as I say, we will have our say. We don't comment on any judicial cases. And I think we need to wait and see what will be the judge's verdict. And after that, we will uh, comment, of course, and we will tell you exactly what is our position. Moses Katumbi has become a strong opposition leader since he resigned from his position of the Katanga province governor last November and before being sued, he has denounced the threats from the government. And in case he should seek protection from the UN mission here, he won't be easily helped unless the UN Security Council should instruct from New York since MONUSCO doesn't protect political actors but civilians. Once more, the UN mission's spokesperson, Charles Antoine Bambara, explains. I think the first responsibility of all political leaders' security in the country remains on the hand of the government, of the hand of the national security forces. And I can say that if Moïse Katoubi asks, you know, protection from the UN, officially we don't have a mandate to protect political leaders. We have a broad mandate of uh, protection of civilians, which we will activate, of course. But if it is a political leader, we need a green light from the Security Council. And in the past, the Security Council has granted to different UN missions, like in Côte d'Ivoire, for instance, the mandate to protect some political leaders. So globally, I can say that within the general framework of the protection of civilians, and this is in Resolution 2277, we can, of course, you know, protect any civilian. What, whichever political, I will say, uh, board he's coming from, majority or opposition, if we think that his life will threaten, we can act. Of course. Police used the tear gas on Wednesday in Lubumbashi to disperse thousands of people, including some other political leaders who accompanied Moses Katumbi to court. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. The campaigns for the next chairperson of the African Union Commission are on. Three countries are vying to take over from South Africa's Dr. Nkosa Zana Zuma. Uganda, Equatorial Guinea and Botswana have each fielded a candidate. Equatorial Guinea has now officially launched its candidacy in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Coletta Wanjohi reports. South Africa's leadership of the African Union Commission that it has held since October 2012 ends in July this year. And with the announcement by Chairperson Dr. Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma that she will not run for the top office again, three countries have filed for candidacy. Uganda, Equatorial Guinea and Botswana have shown interest in the post. In a dinner ceremony held in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, Equatorial Guinea revealed its candidate to the diplomatic community in Ethiopia and the staff of the African Union. 51-year-old Agato Mba Mokui, the current Minister for Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation of the Republic of Equatorial Guinea, is the candidate. If I'm elected, the Commission of the African Union will adopt and implement programs that help the continent to walk in solidarity, speak in unity, act with dignity and prosper. Together. Mr. Mba Mokui argues that with his 18 years' involvement in international career, mostly in the United Nations, he is the right candidate to offer a link that Africa needs to this international body. He also promises reforms to improve working conditions within the African Union Commission. Africa needs a chairperson that has experience in dealing and understanding 
complex international organization of the United Nations system. A chairperson that can easily communicate with heads of states and government. A chairperson that understands that a chairperson, he or she, is not a head of state, but a secretary at the services of the member states. Unity is one of the key campaigning points that Mokuimba is using. He refuses to be identified by the languages he speaks and insists on being called an African. I consider myself as a son of Africa above all. I am from Uganda. I am from Botswana. I am from Egypt. I'm from Algeria. I'm from Madagascar. I'm from Gabon. I'm from Senegal. I am from Liberia. Yes, I'm from Equatorial Guinea. Above all, I am an African. I do not consider myself as Hispanophone, although I speak Spanish. I do not consider myself as a Francophone because although I speak French, I do not consider myself as an Anglophone, although I speak English. I do not consider myself as a Lusophone, although I speak Portuguese. I do consider myself as Africophone. 51-year-old Mba Mokui will be battling with the former vice president of Uganda, 60-year-old Wandera Speciosa Kazibwe, whom reports now show already has the backing of nine African countries. Analysts say that the other candidate, 65-year-old Pelomoni Venson Motoi, the Minister of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation of the Republic of Botswana, may have a hard task convincing African nations to give Botswana the chairmanship, partly because, to begin with, her president does not attend African Union summits. It may be possible that one or more candidates could withdraw their bid at the last minute. Dlamini Zuma's term could then be prolonged if there is no decision on her successor. All this will be decided in the July 2016 African Union Summit to be held in Kigali, Rwanda. Koleto Njoi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. A tense atmosphere engulfs the world's largest refugee camp in Dadaab, northeast of the Kenyan capital Nairobi, where the government is expected to repatriate more than 600,000 Somali refugees. The government maintains that the Bab camp has become a recruitment center and planning space for Somali's Al-Shabaab militants accused of killing more than 500 Kenyans over the past three years. James Shimanyula reports. The Kenyan government's plan to repatriate more than 600,000 Somali refugees to their troubled Horn of Africa country has taken the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees by surprise. Before the plan to repatriate the refugees was announced earlier this week, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees had agreed with the Kenyan authorities that the repatriation of the Somalis would only be voluntary as stipulated in a three-way agreement between the United Nations, Kenya and Somalia. Speaking about the repatriation of Somali refugees from Kenya, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Chief Antonio Guterres, cited the international law governing such repatriation. The process of repatriation of refugees to Somalia needs to abide by international law and to meet uh, international standards. And those standards uh, are that it needs to be voluntary and it's, it needs to be in safety and dignity. However, Guterres emphasized the urgent need to find quick ways of dealing with the repatriation of Somali refugees. 
there is a clear sense of urgency. This has been lasting for such a long time that we need to have a strong commitment to the solution strategy for Somali refugees that had been agreed already by all the countries involved. We recognize that there is a security problem and we have agreed with the government to uh, enhance the security mechanisms in Dadaab in order to guarantee law and order in Dadaab. That's what matters. In the short term, it will be possible to have districts in Somalia that corresponds to the origin of more than half of the population in Dadaab. Strengthening remarks made by the UNHCR chief Emmanuel Nyabera, the agency's spokesman in East Africa, had this to say in an exclusive interview. We have signed what we call the tripartite agreement. That's UNHCR. Kenya government and Somali government that gives us a legal framework that will lead us in the process of repatriating refugees. And one of the key things that we say there is that repatriation has to be voluntary. Nobody should be forced to go back to the country of origin. If the situation in the country has not changed, if the reasons that made them run away from that country are still there. Uh, the reports you get indicate some Somalis exist going home. Some of them were born in this country. Some of them are more than 20 years old and they were born in this country. They want to be sure that when they go back home, they'll be integrated and the repatriation will be sustainable. We don't want situations where refugees cross the border, they go and then they come back. Do you think there is a threat? There's no threat. I wouldn't say that there's a threat. There's no threat from the Somalis to the security of Kenya. I wouldn't say, I mean, security of Kenya is in the hands of the government. That was Emmanuel Nyabera, UNHCR spokesman in East Africa. Kenya's plan to repatriate Somali refugees has been received with shock by the Somalis residing in Dadaab, the world's largest refugee camp. Here are two voices that represent the voices of thousands of Somali refugees in Dadaab, starting with the Somali refugee youth leader Abdul Fattah Ibrahim, who wants the Kenyan government to reverse its decision because, as he says, Somalia remains an unsafe country for Somali returnees. The repatriation process should be halted till negotiations are done and peace prevails. So apparently we cannot allow going back to Somalia. Stressing the fact that Somalia is still an unsafe nation for Somali refugees to return, Halima Mohamed Haji, speaking from the Dab refugee camp, had this to say. Our country is not safe still. There are some parts of the country which is safe. Maybe people from there can go back, but still number of population who are living in the Dab. Their country is not safe. We are not saying that we will not go back to our country. But one day, one time, we will go back. But this is not the right time for us to go back now. That was Halima Mohamed Haji, one of the thousands of refugees in Dadaab refugee camp in northeastern Kenya. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzaka 
in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest here on Channel Africa. If you've just joined us, good afternoon to you. Time now, 1719 Central African. My name is Asanda Mazzaunyani. Back to the business of the day. Today is the International Nurses Day. The day is celebrated around the world annually on 12 May to mark the contributions nurses make to society. The South African Medical Association, SAMA, is using this opportunity to thank all nurses for their hard work and dedication, often against the backdrop of serious challenges. Professor Mark Sonderup, Vice Chairperson of the Board of SAMA, says it's important to celebrate nurses. In times such as these, we need to take days such as International Nurses Day as a moment to just pause and reflect upon the work done by a component of the healthcare team that probably is the most critical, if not the bedrock, on which healthcare delivery actually occurs. As doctors and as a group that represents doctors, we really just want to take the time to respectfully acknowledge our nursing colleagues and the work they do. I think people need to understand that healthcare delivery, although very critically dependent upon the availability of buildings and and clinics, fancy machines and technology, equipment, medicines, etc., without people, those things simply don't work. And the nurses and our nursing colleagues are the people that really are in the front line of delivering care to our patients. They're the ones there who are in the ward with you 24-7. They're there to hold your hand. They're there to wash you, bath you, give you medication, feed you when you need it, comfort you when you need it. And really, it's a profession that remains a calling and one that is becoming increasingly difficult, particularly for our nursing colleagues in our own country. The conditions under which people work are really challenging in many parts. How far do you think the country has come in prioritizing the resourcing and safety of nurses? Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, you know, in in certain aspects we've made good strides, but in other areas we perhaps are still needing to do lots of work. I think the biggest challenge we have, and probably not a challenge that's unique to South Africa, is the same issue we really find within medicine and doctors is the number of staff we have and that remains a very serious concern. Our number of nurses we're producing remains low. So nurses are having to care for much greater numbers of patients in wards, lower staff in you know, lower staffing levels. That increases workload, stress and anxiety and a whole range of problems that you know that can occur. So staffing levels remains a very critical concern. The other issue, of course, around nursing is the number of specialist nurses we're producing. You know, there's a greater need for more specialized nurses in areas such as ICU or critical care and theater nurses and various other aspects. The numbers we're producing are really just not simply enough. How can the country ensure that it produces more and more nurses? Well, you know, I think there are a number of initiatives that are trying to turn around the problem. I think it needs to be said because we mustn't shy away from when we do things right as a country, we must say we did it right and we must pat ourselves on the back. When we did it wrong, we must be big enough to say we were wrong 
and we did it wrong. And what we did wrong in the late 90s was close a lot of the nursing colleges. In the province that I come from, that was done. There were nursing colleges that were closed down. There was this great desire to, to maybe train nurses all at university level. And that simply doesn't work. So we closed down functional institutions that were producing many, many nurses every year. And that's been acknowledged. It's been acknowledged in the last few years. That was an error of judgment by the Department of Health at the time. And those things are being turned around and we're going back to what we had in the past and producing nurses at college and university level. It doesn't matter. You can still produce a high-quality nurse at college level as well. So colleges of Behena have been reopened and reinitiated again, revitalized. And, and so we're turning that issue, you know, turning that issue around. But I think, in hindsight, that wasn't the wisest decision we made in the late part of the 1990s. Just finally, the Professor, how instrumental has your organization been in helping to address the many challenges that nurses face? I mean, we have a close working relationship with Democratic Nursing Organization of South Africa, DONOSA. We are a fraternal, they are a fraternal grouping of ours. We maintain very good relations with the nurses' um, trade union. We lie certainly at that level. And certainly in our dealings with the Department of Health, we've not been shy to tell them where the challenges exist. And uh, we continue to remind them of the challenges at nursing level. So it's, it's not something that we've shied away from in continuously highlighting these issues in our dealings with the Department of Health. But uh, we like to think that we work very fraternally in a combined fashion with our nursing colleagues in Donosa. That's Professor Mark Sonderup, Vice Chairperson of the Board of the South African Medical Association, talking to Elizabeth Lidicha. The Chief Executive of the U.S.-based Millennium Challenge Corporation, or MSCC, Dana Hyde, say, is one of the more than 1,500 delegates at the World Economic Forum on Africa underway in Kigali, Rwanda. The three-day event, which opened yesterday, brings together business, government and civil society leaders to discuss and agree on important issues facing the future of the continent and the world. The MCC is a bilateral United States foreign aid agency, which provides economic assistance to developing countries, and before her attendance of the WEF, Ms. Hyde visited Zambia and Malawi, two of the countries with which the MCC has agreements. She elaborates. What sticks in my mind, obviously, is the meetings with the local officials in the community. In Malawi, the entire community came out to greet us as we inaugurated uh, and did the groundbreaking related to the substation. The singing, the dancing, the wonderful food. So those surely will be the memories that are at the front of my mind. In addition, I had very constructive conversations with government officials in both Zambia and Malawi about the compacts. As you know, in Malawi, where we are working in the energy sector, working closely with the Ministry of Energy, as well as the utility in supporting their efforts of bringing and private capital and involvement. One of the greatest highlights of the visit was I was able to visit the launch of the first recycling center in Lusaka, where we've partnered with the private sector to start a program there. And are people very keen about recycling? And that's something that we are very used to here in South Africa, about being a first in Zambia. Yes. And what is the feeling from the people on the ground about that? Very enthusiastic. There are community workers and largely women who have enlisted to come and collect and bring the recycling materials to the central facility where they will be processed. I spoke with all of them. They were thrilled. They're bringing in their neighbors and their friends. 
and feeling really good about the contribution that they can make to their country. Now, you are now in Kigali on the last stop of a three-country trip. As we said, Zambia, Malawi, now Rwanda. You are there for the World Economic Forum on Africa. What are you doing there as part of the forum? I've just wrapped up a panel discussion. We had a fascinating conversation with the South African Deputy President on uh, sure investments in Africa, as well as folks from GE and other private sector members. You know, we spoke about how to bridge the financing gap for academic economic and social infrastructure. I talked about MCC's unique approach, such that we use, like in Zambia and Malawi, about leveraging for development. There was a large conversation around how to mitigate risk perceptions, different ways of using blended finance, and how to make all of these investments sustainable over the long run. You've just mentioned MCC's unique approach to leveraging the private sector for development. Tell us a bit more about that. MCC is a public donor, can take an investment where there's often not private capital, for example, a utility. Uh, While we know that there are many private investors looking for independent power producers and uh, power production agreements, MCC is focusing on the utility and to make that utility a credit-worthy off-taker and able to generate private investment. So that's where our dollars will be spent while the private actors uh, largely are working in generation capacity. What about some examples of where this type of public-private collaboration is happening and will be happening? The example I cited about the recycling center related to our water infrastructure investments in Lusaka, that itself is a PPP, as they call it. We're partnering with Zambian breweries in that case and putting up capital to start the center and then the community will take it over and, and have it be sustainable in the long term. Just reflecting now on your two previous countries, you were scheduled to meet with both the presidents. Did that in fact happen? And is it scheduled that you will meet with Rwanda's leader, Paul Kagame, by any chance? There were some scheduling challenges in Zambia, uh, and I was unable to connect with the president was on his way to Livingston as I was in the capital. So uh, we missed each other there. Uh, but I did meet with President Matarka in Malawi. We had a good conversation, a very specific conversation about the status of the reforms of the utility as well as the groundbreaking ceremony. And, you know, there we've signed seven of the eight contracts for our work and we reviewed the progress and we're both very pleased with where we're proceeding in Malawi. MCC is participating in the forum here, um, and there have been a number of good conversations around infrastructure on this part of the continent. But no, I will not be having any private meetings. And then finally, you have been on the continent last year in 2015. You almost done a three-country visit this time around. What does the future look like? When will you be back on the continent? And are there any new plans that MCC has in mind for the future with Africa? Yes. A couple of really exciting things are coming forward. We're in the final, final stages of our compact design with Niger, and we hope this summer to be able to find the compact with Niger. And that is something that we're very much looking forward to. We are also moving forward uh, to the next stage with Ghana. And our work there is in energy, again, supporting the utility and its work. And there's an opportunity perhaps for me to come back. And finally, our new partners, both Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire are in the early stages of the design of our compact. A lot of work is being done and good progress is being made. So there's opportunities for me to visit there as well. That was Dana Hyde, Chief Executive Officer of the United States Millennium Challenge Corporation, on the line from Kigali in Rwanda, talking to Janine Kutsa.
Just after 17.30 Central African time here on Africa Digest, let's get news headlines. Here's Onele. Five killed by a suicide bomber outside government offices in Nigeria's northeastern city of Maiduguri. Uganda has been asked to arrest Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir and hand him over to the International Criminal Court and the campaign for the next chairperson of the African Union Commission gets underway. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilintzintzi. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, this is Africa Digest. Air pollution levels are rising in many of the world's poorest cities, putting the health of millions of people at risk. This is crux of a new report by the World Health Organization, the WHO. According to the report, about 98% of cities in low- and middle-income countries do not meet the WHO's air quality guidelines. The agency's Dr. Anes Prososton elaborates further on the contents of the report. We have compiled data of more than 3,000 cities and localities, and the amazing result is that 80% of the people living in those cities live at air quality levels which exceed the WHO guideline levels for air pollution, meaning they are at risk from various diseases caused by air pollution. To be more specific, in those cities that we could assess in our database, 98% of them in low- and middle-income countries with more than 100,000 inhabitants do not meet WHO air quality guideline levels. And in high-income countries, that percentage is still 56%. So it is problem, a public health problem that touches almost the whole world. What are some of the reasons why populations in low-income cities are the most impacted? Possibly there has been a lot of recent development in terms of cars, industrial activity, economic development, energy production, and those developments have not gone along with the necessary controls. So you have to accompany all this growth with controls, for example, taking care that you put norms and standards on exhaust from cars, regulating industrial emissions, and so on. Which are the most vulnerable populations in terms of impacts of poor air quality? Both children and adults are at risk. Young children from infectious respiratory diseases and adults from, say, about 50 on from cardiovascular disease and chronic respiratory diseases and lung cancer. So both the young and the older are equally at risk. Can you just explain to us, doctor, why people should be concerned about the quality of air they breathe? 
The biggest risk for health is actually heart attacks and strokes. On days with higher air pollution, hospitals see higher attendance in their emergency rooms for heart disease. So it can really be seen on a day-to-day basis. How are countries faring in terms of putting regulations in place to address this problem? It depends on the country. Many countries have started putting regulations in place. WHO has air quality guideline levels with various targets, very strict targets for fully achieved air quality standards, but also intermediate targets for countries that are getting there. So most countries have by now regulation in place, but the problem is uh, the enforcement of these regulations. To tell you an example, we live in Geneva, WHO is in Geneva, Switzerland, and even here the guideline levels are not always met. So it's really a problem of all over the world. And one really needs to have quite some more aggressive policies. Strong political commitment is required to do something about it. For example, you need to think of different transportation, use of more cleaner vehicles, also personal choices, get away from motorized private transport, go towards walking and cycling, use more renewable energies that go get away from fossil fuel combustion, because that's much what it is, coal-fired power plants, fuel combustion, solid fuel combustion, etc. And then there is also a problem linked to poorer households, which do still need to rely on cooking and heating on solid fuels, and they do not have access to cleaner fuels. So these are all problems that need to be addressed by policymakers, but also individuals can contribute to some extent. But in reality, is this a problem that can be solved? Oh, definitely. Some countries and some cities have been making a great progress lately. We, We see rates in certain regions going down. We see innovative solutions. We see a higher concern, higher political commitment. Yes, I think technical solutions are out there. We are more and more moving towards, for example, electric vehicles. That would solve the problem to a great deal. And I would think most importantly, countries are also making very important commitments in the framework of the climate change conventions. So, And while, while addressing that issue, air pollution will also largely be addressed. And that is currently what is taking place by strong commitment from many heads of states. That's Dr. Annette Prus-Osten of the World Health Organization speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. South Africa is open for business. This is the key message the country is bringing to the 26th Annual World Economic Forum on Africa underway in Rwanda. Promoting innovation is high on the agenda as leaders from 10 African countries and various stakeholders engage in Kigali this week. The World Economic Forum on Africa meeting has become an event for top political, business, community leaders to congregate around the African development agenda. It seeks to promote public-private partnership. It is being held under the theme Digital Transformation. More from South Africa's Minister of Telecommunications and Post Services, Siabonga Kwele. Yeah, it is very important for us because, uh, as you know, this uh, West Africa was uh, originally 
negotiated between our country. It was originally to be in Switzerland and in, in Keta. Then other African countries then asked to be given a chance. Now it alternate between Keta and one African country. But to us, because uh, there's a forum where you meet uh, leaders from both business, from uh, community leadership, and governments coming together. As a country first, it's very important that uh, we come here with a lot of South African companies which are here, or companies which are based in South Africa, and uh, we come with one voice. That voice is that our country is very open to business. Our country is a very resilient, it's got a very resilient economy and a resilient institutions, including judiciary. And uh, two, that we have got particular example of a good partnership with uh, the private sector. You remember a few years ago, we had a problem with energy when our lights were just uh, going off most of the time. And that has become the age of the, of the past because of our investment and secondly because of our renewable energy program, which is driven mainly by the private sector. So those are the things, and two, we are coming to learn from each other because we all face a challenge. If we don't deal with it properly, that will affect us quite negatively. This thing of a digital economy driven by hyper-connectivity of the Internet and Internet of Things. So it is to help us to be innovative in our thinking, in our doing of things, and uh, move from old habits to new habits, which will make us cope to deal with this uh, big revolution which we are facing now uh, as industry, as government, and as civil society. This WEF on Africa is mainly a gathering of government officials and the business community. How would you say, you know, the ordinary person there on the street gets to benefit from such gathering of this magnitude? Uh, we have quite a, a number of people representing uh, NGOs uh, from Africa uh, who are participating here, bringing their perspectives. But also, WEF has got a, a program of social entrepreneurs, the people who are doing uh, other through their small businesses making a marked impact. And uh, three South African out of uh, the four people who won awards were from South Africa uh, on this uh, social entrepreneurship where people are identified in their communities and assess on their impact and then they are given assistance to do it more. So we're very proud that uh, the two ladies were from South Africa and one gentleman from South Africa were among the four people who were receiving awards today. The benefit to society really is that everything is about the consumer, which is the society. All the things we are doing are to try and say, what would be the benefit to the consumer? What was more encouraging to me in some of the sessions I was leading discussions or participating, where even people are talking the language we've been saying, uh, as government of inclusion, where, for instance, uh, if you check in South Africa, we've got two economies, informal economy and a formal economy. But big companies now, they are financial, they are trying to modify their financial products so that they can assist those people who are in the informal economy so that they can also be uplifted to the formal part of the economy. So those are the the long-term benefits of what we're doing, that people are starting to think about those people who were not thought of uh, before, 
because they all matter now. They all form the market. So to me, that was quite uh, important. The other thing is uh, the innovations, for instance, we're trying to showcase here in South Africa. is innovation which affects the ordinary people. Uh, and we're also learning. I mean, on the financial side, the Empresa here in Kenya is being adopted by many countries because people were not having access to financing. But uh, in South Africa, the wireless uh, uh, transmission of uh, power, those technologies which are being uh, uh, studied now, the world is looking at them uh, because so that even people who are far from this electricity grid can reach electricity. As you know, we have got uh, in South Africa uh, technologies which talk about waterless loo. Uh, it's called Fevi loo. A toilet which doesn't need water. All those technologies, they are directed at assisting the people who don't have access to these things at the moment. So the ultimate objective is to assist those who are not participating uh, in the formal economy at this stage. Minister, you mentioned that the key message that the South African delegation is bringing to on Africa is the fact that South Africa is open for business. But what is it that you are hoping to get out of this uh, forum when it ends? What we're hoping for is that uh, more and more companies will come and base themselves in, in South Africa. And in particular, in relation to innovation, because companies now, they are starting to put a lot of money for their research and development and innovation. We are hoping more and more companies uh, who are meeting big companies, international companies, that they, they will come there. Uh, I also met some of these uh, big uh, uh, companies which are involved in the social media, like uh, just at the meeting with uh, Google now, leadership, where they were trying to respond to the things we complained about last week. When they were telling me that they'll be able now to train hundreds of thousands of people from South Africa, uh, Nigeria and Ghana, they want to reach a million people trained just on the basic use of the Internet and Internet economy. To me, that's very progressive because this is through those type of partnerships. When they're trying to say they'll train our teachers to be trainers of other people, that's also very, very, very important. And uh, they are looking at uh, innovative ways to bring the cost of communication down in South Africa and also up the skills and assist our education system. So we are really hoping that uh, more and more companies will, and, and more of our companies will also have business in Africa because our focus is Africa. That's where the growth is. Uh, that's where the process of the market is not saturated. And uh, I'm very happy that with most of our CEOs who are here, and I'm sure they'll come back with some business deal as the president directed them before we left our country. That was South Africa's Minister of Telecommunications and Post Services, Siabonga Kwele. He was on the line from Kigali to Ntlantla Mahlangu. Time now for our economics news. Here's Jualani Tulu. Thank you, Asanda. Good evening. South Africa's manufacturing sector fell 2% in March. The decline was led by drops in basic iron and steel and metal products. Yana LaRue of ETM Analytics says the sectors are likely to contribute negatively to GDP numbers in the first quarter. 
The latest mining and manufacturing production figures fail to inspire any confidence in terms of the local productive sector, as it not only exposes the lingering structural restraints that hamper the sector, but it also captures the negative fallout from significantly softer commodity prices and a generally weaker global economy. Uh, while looking at the March data, it shows us that in the first quarter, mining output contracted some 5% on a quarter-on-quarter basis, and this means that this sector possibly detracted quite significantly from GDP in the first quarter. Still in South Africa, the country's power utility ESCOM says it has regained the control and there are no prospects of load shedding. The power utility was briefing journalists in Parliament. CEO Brian Mulefe says they have more planned maintenance outages than unplanned and are already planning for December maintenance. Load shedding has not been implemented for the past nine months and he says there are no planned outages this winter. So we are in... Quite a comfortable situation going forward. I think by the end of this year, um, uh, we will be comfortable already. And in fact, in five years' time, which is 2020, 2021, we can safely say that we will have excess capacity that we will be able to export. Gabon expects its economy, which has been hit hard by the slide in world oil prices, to grow by 3% in 2016 and then pick up pace next year. President Ali Bongo, who is seeking another seven years in office in August, told Reuters he would speed up measures to diversify the economy away from oil if he secured a second term. Bongo was speaking in an interview on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum on Africa, which is being held in the Rwandan capital in Kigali. The IMF said in March that it expected Gabon's economy to grow 3.2% this year and then possibly as fast as 5% in 2017 and 2018 if it, if it invests in agriculture, particularly in cash crops such as palm oil and rubber. Kenya plans to encourage local production and blending of fertilizers to help cut import costs and reduce subsidies needed to make fertilizers affordable for poor farmers. Farming accounts for a quarter of Kenya's annual economic output, but the high cost of fertilizers means farmers rely on subsidies or avoid using them, which hurts output. The government spent more than $159 million to subsidize fertilizers in the last three years. Kenyan Agriculture Minister Willie Bett was speaking on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum. Bet added the next step now is to manufacture fertilizers, possibly starting in 2020. Taking a look at the financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 1501 to the South African Rand, at 1086 to the Botswana Pula, and at 986 to the Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 069 to the British Pound and at 087 to the Euro. On the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,276 and platinum at $1,065 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at 42 Seven dollars forty-two cents a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Jolani. Let's get our sports update now. Here's Musbudi Makura.
Thank you, Sunday. Good day, sports fans. And starting off with athletics news, South African 400-meter hurdle LJ Fancel is set to compete in Friday's IAAF Diamond League meeting with two other South African athletes in Shanghai and China. This is the second Diamond League series after the opening leg in Doha, Qatar last week, Friday. Our correspondent, Geshe reports. LJ Fancel is targeting to make South Africa's team for the Rio Olympic Games in Brazil only if he can impress the selectors with good results. Fanzel is quite an unpredictable athlete, but at times capable of delivering the goods. He is a former Commonwealth Games champion, three times Africa champion, a silver and a bronze medal winner at the World Championships. LJ Fanzel's wife Yvette is one of the country's top marathon runners and she qualified for the Rio Olympics at the London Marathon last month. Two other South Africans competing in Shanghai are long jumper and Commonwealth Games bronze medalist Samai Rushail and the relatively unknown Renard van Rensbeek who will compete in the 800 meters. The lineup includes world record holder and Olympic champion David Rudisha of Kenya. Geshom Yati, Channel for Sports, London. On to rugby news, the Springboks will, t- will tackle Ireland in the three test series in June without a main sponsor. According to reports, the negative image portrayed by SA Rugby over the past year is seemingly the reason why there has been a struggle to secure a main sponsor for the Springboks. It is believed that APSA opted out of renewing its contract due to the lack of transformation in the national team. There were rumours that Bedvets would um, replace APSA as the main sponsors, but nothing has been concluded. There also appears to have been in fighting within Saru in the recent times with Rassi Erasmus resigning from his general manager of her performance role to undertake the director of rugby position at the Irish club Munster. Uh, SA Rugby has also copped heavy criticism from Minister of Sports and Recreation Sfigli Mbalula for its apparent lack of transformation with Mbalula barring the organization from bidding to host major international events. Now the box will take on Ireland in uh, alternative green and and white strip before playing Argentina in the iconic green and gold in the opening match of the rugby championship in Alspreet in August. On to local football news, the Premier Soccer League has announced that the 2015-2016 Piazzolla Awards will be held at the Empress Palace in Cape Town on Monday night, the 30th of May. The awards return to Empress Palace after almost a decade. The last time the PSL Awards were held at the venue was back in 2007. The PSL has also confirmed that the nominees for the PSL Awards will be unveiled on the 23rd of May at the PSL headquarters in Park Town in Johannesburg. On to tennis news. Swiss third seed Roger Federer's Rome Masters bid ended with a 7-6-4 um, third round defeat to Aust- um, Austrian 13th seed Dominic Thiem on Thursday. Federer, who withdrew last week from the Madrid Open with a back pain, admitted Wednesday he wa- had been surprised to have gotten past opponent um, in the second round, Alexandra Zverev, in straight sets. Rome marks only the fourth tournament of the season for Federer, who underwent a knee surgery in early February, the first operation of his career. The 17-time Grand Slam champion only decided to face Thiem at the last minute on Central Court, and the Austrian capitalized to finish off an obviously ailing Fedra in one hour and 18 minutes. 
And finally, local netball news, the Free State Crimes will be revealed, um, will be relieved rather, to have star defender Carla Mostad back in their team when they take on the Western Cape Southern Stings in this weekend's Brutal Food Netball Premier League in Johannesburg. Michael Flissmas reports. Mostert is back after a highly successful debut season with Bath in the English Super League and she's just as keen to make her return with a tough match against the Stings on Saturday. So Saturday is going to be a tight one. I think that's also a good a reason why I really look forward to playing again and for the week. It was quite a, a tough game coming up for us. Uh, I think I've learned so much there and I'm really looking forward to see the improvement I made or how it's going to compare going back into the brutal fruit. The unbeaten Northwest Flames also have a tricky encounter against the rapidly improving Golden Fireballs on Saturday. Michael Flismus, Johannesburg. Those are sports news at the sound. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Thank you, uh, Musabudi. Let's recap our top stories from the Sawa. The United Nations mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo says its mandate is not to protect political actors. Today is the International Nurses' Day. That's how we wrap up this hour of Africa Digest. From me, Asanda Matsaunyane, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Sihlendlovu, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thanks for tuning in. For comments on our show, send us an email. Our address is info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also SMS plus 27 796 957930. We're also on Twitter. Our handle is at Channel Africa One. Taking us to the top of the hour now, here's a song titled Pagade by Lyra. <laughs> 